This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Ryan Watts, Democratic nominee for Congress in North Carolina 6. Thank you both for joining me, and Ryan, congratulations on winning your primary. Thank you very much. Uh, we are we are so excited. Uh, the May primary went very well. Not only were we excited by the margin of victory uh, in the primary, we were also thrilled with the turnout. It was higher than we expected, and it was the second highest turnout uh, in North Carolina. Uh, we got almost 30,000 votes in the primary, and uh, so we were just thrilled with that, and we're ready for November. So what was the journey like prior to the primary? Why did you jump into the race and how did you end up winning by such a large margin? Well, I've, I've always uh, been involved in politics. I've always cared deeply about uh, this country and the opportunities that I've been fortunate enough to be blessed with. And I've always wanted to make a difference with whatever abilities or skills that I had. And after, you know, we all woke up the night after uh, 2016's election and um, that that reinvigorated my my drive to find a way to make sure that uh, we found a better direction for this country. Uh, I was concerned about the rhetoric. I was concerned about the divisiveness. And and so I'll never forget um, sitting out on the back deck at my house uh, with some friends on New Year's Eve, just before we turned the page over to 2017 and lamenting the election and, and everything that had gone on. And my friend looked at me straight in the face and he said, you know, you really ought to run for Congress in, in North Carolina 6. And at the time, I kind of chuckled it off, uh, but he he continued to be persistent. And so I said, okay, you know what? I will investigate what it would take uh, not only to get into the race, but to win. I, I didn't want to get into the race thinking that I couldn't win. Uh, I wanted to do it the right way and, and be very thorough about the process. And so I sat down with community leaders, elected officials, uh, friends, family, every, uh, you know, every person that I could find who would give me the time of day and had over 100 conversations. And I got to be honest, I, I anticipated that someone along that journey would tell me that uh, I shouldn't do it, that I was too young. I was, you know, I was 27 at the time. And not, no one said that. Everyone was was incredibly encouraging. And so I went to candidate trainings, I learned more about, you know, how to refine my story and my message, which believe it or not, is really challenging. And at the end of the day, uh, in last July, or I guess July of 2017, uh, I officially threw my hat into the ring. Uh, fast forward to May, we win the primary and uh, enthusiasm in this district is really high. This is the first time in, in more than 30 years where this race is competitive. And I think it's a testament to uh, to new generations of leadership who are stepping up, not just in my race and, and in North Carolina 6, but across the country. People are ready for something new. And our generation, I believe, is the future, is our hope for the future. And our generation is the most 
accepting and inclusive generation ever in America. And that is really what this country wants and what it needs. So Ryan, um, no Democrat has won election to the House in your district since 1982. Uh, what, in your opinion, is, is different this year? And why are you optimistic about your candidacy? Well, I think there's a couple of factors. Number one, uh, the, uh, the long-term incumbent uh, prior to my, my opponent taking over in this district, uh, his name was Howard Coble. Howard Coble was a Republican, but he was pretty well liked. Uh, he, he was uh, a bipartisan guy. He he was always accountable. He was always present in the district. He would show up and uh, and you know eat hot dogs at the local eatery, and, and people knew where he'd be, and they could they could find him. And so you know there wasn't really a strong challenge mounted against him because he was he was very well liked. And uh, while certainly this is a district that uh, has been Republican for a long time, we're encouraged uh, by a couple of things. The first is there are seventy thousand more Democrats in this district than Republicans, and so um, that obviously means that when Democrats get out and vote in this district, we win, and that's true in general. When Democrats vote across this country, we win, and that's because we've got the right message and we've got the right vision for what we want this country to be. But I also think that for a long time, Democrats have really had a, had trouble coming together. We saw that in 2016, of course, with uh, the, the Bernie and Hillary uh, divide and uh, the, the progressive versus centrist wing of the party. And I thought, you know, even before I, I tossed my hat into the ring, I had a hypothesis that there was and is a message that could pull this party together and and even build the tent bigger for people who are unaffiliated independent who um, who are frustrated by both parties and so I think the end result of my candidacy and, and why we have been running so strong is that people are excited about my age it started out as a liability but now it's something that people are, are really excited about because it's not about how old you are it's about how you carry yourself and, and I think that that's been really huge. For us. Uh, I also think that our platform is made for this district. It is it is not far left. It is not center. It is about what this district needs. And and to be honest with you, you know, and I say this all the time, politics is not a two-dimensional spectrum. It is at least three-dimensional, if not just off of the off of the spectrum altogether. You know, people the politics isn't black and white. And I think for a long time we have we have treated it as such. There are so many shades of gray. There are so many ways that we can move forward together. And that's what our platform has really energized uh, in this party, in the unaffiliated crowd, and even Republicans who are really disenchanted with who we've got in office right now. Ryan, what you're saying really reminds me of something Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been saying that this isn't about left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. This is about top versus bottom. Could you tell us a little more about your platform? You focus on universal health care, gun safety, green energy. You say that this platform is meant for your district. How is that so? Really good question. Um, you know, I, I've really liked the top versus bottom line uh, that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has used because it's so true. I mean, wealth is more consolidated now in America than it ever has. I mean, since 1979, CEO uh, pay has risen more than a thousand percent and wages for other people have risen like 11 and a half percent. And so if that doesn't show the disparity in this country that's going on, uh, nothing will. Uh, but I, my, my line that I've, that I've been using uh, really for a long time has been, this isn't about red versus blue. This is about people, not 
just the privileged few. And so it's it's a very similar concept, but our platform is all about, you know, the fact that Washington is failing us right now, that people like my opponent are their reelection campaigns are almost solely funded uh, by by corporate special interests. Uh, we're not taking a dime of that money. We have outraised my opponent from individual contributors. And I think that that is really exciting. You know, we're restoring power to the people, but it's not just about what's going on right now. It's also about the fact that we have really failed to look forward at problems that are on our front doorstep and that are not and that are not following too far behind as well. So I, I also like to say, you know, Washington right now is not proactive. It's not even really reactive. It's inactive. And and that is we are failing Americans by not addressing these problems proactively. And so our platform is all about building the economy of the future. That means good paying jobs. If you're working full time, you shouldn't be struggling to make ends meet. We, we need to be fighting for living wages in this country. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people that I've met who are working 80 hours a week. Uh, you know, this one woman I met canvassing uh, several months ago, uh, she, I walked up to her door. She was outside raking leaves in the yard, uh, doing some yard work. I, I introduced myself to her and she turned around and she walked away from me, walked inside. And I said, okay, well, I guess we're, we're I guess we're moving on to the next house here. But she comes back outside and she brings four kids with her. She introduces me to all four. And she says there used to be a fifth and her oldest son had been shot and killed in a drive-by. And, and and then she went on to talk about how she's working 80 hours a week. She was just diagnosed with cancer. She's having to make decisions about, you know, paying for her health care bill, staying alive as a single parent so she can, you know, you know get her kids ready to, to go to college or, or to take a job. Uh, she's, you know, having to make decisions between paying her energy bill and putting food on the table. I mean, this is this is just one story, but it is. It is an exemplification of what people are going through in this country. And, and I'm tired of politicians in Washington that are talking about the, the, the stock market and how great it's doing, how low unemployment is. Well, that's great, but it's not great when wages aren't growing as fast as the cost of living is increasing. And so that that translates to making sure people have the education, the job training, the skills that they need to advance themselves. It means making sure that you don't have to worry about your health. If you aren't healthy, you can't work, you can't provide for your family. And so our platform is really about empowering our future, your future, our family's futures and the future generations of this country. So Ryan, I want to dig a little bit more into that story that you mentioned, because it's not too dissimilar, I think, from tens of thousands of other stories from everyday Americans. That woman that you mentioned, she lost a child to gun violence and North Carolina is a red area and there is this pervasive gun culture that is passed down from father, son, all throughout our history. Could you tell us a little bit about what your plans would be for what we like to call constitutional gun reform? Absolutely. Um, first, let me just say, you know, my dad uh, is one of those folks who uh, has had, you know, firearms passed down to him from his his father and, and the father before him. And, you know, I'm likely to inherit those as well. And, and for the record, you know, I own multiple firearms. I've I've passed a concealed carry weapons class. Um, it's interesting that in North Carolina, they're trying to do away with some of the uh, rules and regulations that require you if you go through that class to demonstrate proficiency using 
a firearm. Uh, they're they're trying to just make it so that anyone and everyone can can carry a, a concealed weapon. And so it this th this is another one of those issues where it's not just black and white. And so uh, it's interesting that I caught a lot of flack uh, here, as you as you mentioned, from some of the the, the constitutionalists uh, who 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 think that uh, n none of these rights should be infringed upon from a gun ownership perspective. Uh, I went and attended uh, the rally for our lives that the, the Parkland uh, shooting survivors have put on and, you know, met met Emma and, and all of those folks at the rally, posted pictures from the rally, and that brought out uh, some, some really interesting comments uh, from some folks. And so what I always point out to them is that the last time we passed major sweeping uh, gun legislation and gun reform, it was at, with Republicans in leadership. Uh, and, and and Ronald Reagan and, and multiple others signed off on the, the federal assault weapons ban uh, that we passed in 1994 and was supported as early as 1989. And a conservative Supreme Court upheld it as constitutional. Uh, this is, we, we've got to acknowledge uh, first and foremost that we have a problem that is unique to our country among developed nations. Other countries are not suffering from this public health epidemic um, like we are. And we have, to, we have to examine ourselves, we have to examine our culture, and we have to examine our laws uh, to find out, you know, what can we do to make things better? We cannot just say, you know, well, we've got the, se the Second Amendment, and so there therefore, there's nothing that we can do about it. Uh, our generation, millennials, uh, we don't care so much about who gets the credit. We don't even necessarily always care about who's to blame. We care about solving problems. That is why I decided to run was because it doesn't matter to me what party gets the job done. It matters to me that we get the job done. And so a lot of our platform is built around the fact that we need to once again enable the CDC to study this issue. I mean, we've got an issue. Let's study it and let's figure out what to do about it. But we also know that there are some common sense things that overwhelmingly are supported by Americans, more than 70% of Americans, more than 90% of Americans support universal background checks uh, and support connecting those background checks to the FBI terrorist watch list and no fly list, whatever it may be. Uh, and what I what I tell people is, look, if you are a if you are a American who who doesn't break the law, uh, you're, you're seeking to protect your home and you're seeking to protect your family at home. Um, no one is saying that you shouldn't have that right. What we are trying to do is we are trying to make sure that if a bad person, uh, if, a, if a criminal of any sort shows up with a weapon, that we increase the likelihood that they bring a knife to your gunfight. That is what we are saying to people, and that is what I believe most Democrats are saying. We aren't saying let's confiscate people's weapons. We're saying there are some easy, easy steps that we can take to make sure that guns stay out of the wrong hands. And are we going to prevent every crisis? No. Are we going to prevent every mass shooting? Maybe not. But if we prevent one, isn't it worth it? And I think that that is why so many Americans are sick and tired of waking up on a weekly basis as school is getting started here in North Carolina this week. They're worried about taking their students to school, wondering if they'll come home uh, in the evening uh, on the bus. And, and we're just ready to, to, to try and solve this problem. And I think other countries have, have shown that it can be effective.
Ryan, you've been endorsed by Equality North Carolina, which is very significant given the visible anti-LGBTQ crusade that the North Carolina GOP has waged in recent years. Now, most of our listeners probably know about HB2, North Carolina's anti-transgender bill that resulted in massive boycotts against the state. But what most folks don't know is about HB142, the bill labeled by the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor as a repeal, but denounced by the Human Rights Campaign, Equality North Carolina, Lambda Legal, the ACLU, and other pro-LGBT rights groups as disastrous for the transgender community. Now, the reason I bring this up to you is because Democratic Governor Roy Cooper was elected because of his opposition to HB2 and promised to be an ally to the transgender community when in office, but immediately betrayed us and lied to our faces by calling HB 142 a repeal bill when it actually did nothing to fix the problems of HB 2. And this represents an ugly pattern of supposedly progressive Democrats abandoning the marginalized communities they claim to support once they're in office, treating us as expendable, as bargaining chips. What do you intend to do in Congress to protect transgender rights? And why do you think that transgender voters should trust you to not do the same as Roy Cooper? Uh, I totally agree that uh, the repeal, quote unquote, bill uh, was insufficient. It, it didn't do enough uh, to undo the damage by HB2. But I also think that it's really important to acknowledge that uh, North Carolina and its, and its state legislator, uh, the Senate and the House, uh, there is a supermajority uh, that Republicans have in both uh, of those houses. And so North Carolina and Roy Cooper have launched a massive campaign to, to break the supermajority. I think that Governor Cooper uh, wishes that he could have had a full repeal of HB2 um, and just couldn't get it passed uh, because Republicans could have overridden his veto. And it was more important to accomplish something than nothing and to restore some protections for the LGBTQIA community. I, I also uh, think that this is where the federal government has a responsibility. Uh, yes, you know, states should have some ability to, to act in the best interest of the people of their states, but the federal government by constitutional uh, declaration has an ability or has the obligation to provide equality for all people. Uh, and I will, I will tell you that, you know, my dad and my stepmom, they're Republicans and, and my, my mom is an unaffiliated voter. My stepdad is a Democrat. And what my dad first taught me about what, why he was a Republican was that he believed that less government was better government. Now, while I don't agree with that necessarily in many, in many ways, uh, I do think it's important for Democrats to point out to Republicans that when they are acting in this way, when they are removing uh, or when they are creating barriers uh, to, to people and their, and their own individual pursuit of happiness and life and liberty, that we are actively, that is actively more government. So if you are a Republican who says, yes, I want less government, and then you're supportive of these of these sorts of bills that, that remove protections for people who are simply living their lives uh, the way that, that they are called, the way that they the way that they, they see fit, that is more government. And so, yes, I, um, I am uh, for, for the record, I am a straight white male. But as I said before, you know, our generation 
is so accepting and inclusive of all people. And so my job in Congress is to stand up for people that look like me, that or that don't look like me, that are part are parts of different generate of different generations, of different orientations, of different religions. And so if a state like North Carolina or any other state out there is passing legislation that is infringing on people's rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, it is my belief that the federal government has an obligation to step up and override that sort of legislation with legislation that protects all people. And uh, that is something that I will fight for in Congress. Ryan, you you mentioned a little bit about the uh, Republican supermajority. And I want to talk a little bit about what I view as a problem of corruption. So the idea that the congressional maps are corrupt with gerrymandering. Republicans are pushing these voter ID laws to disenfranchise people all across the board. Um, we're seeing in the Trump administration that members of the cabinet are actually actively corrupt. Um, Wilbur Ross, for example, is accused of stealing over $100 million. Scott Pruitt, Steve Mnuchin, these people are using their positions uh, for their own personal gain. Chris Collins with Insider Trading. Um, when you think about approaching government, um, how would you try, if elected to the House, to root out corruption and ensure that this culture does not continue over time? Well, uh, you know, I, I think the message of draining the swamp really resonated with a lot of people. I think that it is a lot of why Donald Trump won in 2016. But, you know, unfortunately, he didn't drain the swamp. He reinforced it with gold plates. And uh, he put a whole bunch of people in his cabinet who are beholden uh, to either special interests or their own uh, self-interest. And so while um, we while the House, uh, for example, the House Oversight Committee is spending time interviewing Peter Strzok, you know, I think that is I think a lot more people would be more interested in having hearings uh, having to do with members of Congress and members of this cabinet who are profiteering uh, and grifting off of uh, this administration. And there's no better example. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't like to talk about the president a ton, but there's no better example than having spent over 100 days uh, in, in just less than two years of a presidency uh, at, a, at a golf course uh, or a country club that is owned by the president and taxpayer dollars being spent uh, to to put you know, staff and, and secret service and press and all sorts of stuff in, in the hotel. Uh, and that, that money is flowing right into the Trump corporation. I think that is, that is a waste of taxpayer dollars and, and it, it's wrong, uh, frankly, but there is a systemic level of corruption that must be solved for. And so uh, there are two things that I'd like to do right away uh, when elected in November. The first is I would like to pass federal legislation that requires nonpartisan third party drawing of congressional districts nationwide. Um, this would end gerrymandering once and for all, and it would it would remove the ability of politicians to pick who their constituents are and empower constituents to actually pick who their representatives are in North Carolina. You know, they drew these maps in North Carolina uh, very strategically to make it so that there were 10 Republicans in, in the House uh, and three Democrats. And, and, and the famous quote is that if they could have figured out how to make it 11 versus two, as opposed to 10 versus three, they would have done it. But this is the best that they could do. And so it's time once and for all for us to end gerrymandering nationwide. Uh, and, and that is one of the first things that I would do. The second uh, piece of legislation that I would like to sponsor that would clean up Congress is I would like to enforce 
um, insider trading laws in, in Congress. And I would also like to remove the ability for members of Congress to sit on corporate boards. Um, my opponent since, uh, sits on several for-profit boards uh, and makes additional money that way. Um, you mentioned Chris Collins. You know, the reason that he had access to inside information was because he was a part of a board and his son was also a part of, of trading, um, in this case, uh, allegedly, but it looks pretty convincing. And so we, we if, if politicians are mo more focused on their bottom line, how can they be focused on their constituents' bottom line, on their constituents' health, on their constituents' well-being? And I think the only way for us to break this cycle and to get us back on a better path for democracy as a whole is for us to, to clean up Washington. It doesn't have to mean draining the swamp, but it does have to mean taking power away from these special interest corporations that run Washington and restoring it to the pocket and the power of the people. That, that's, what, that's the only way we're going to start solving these problems that we're faced with. So Ryan, one big anti-corruption measure that a lot of non-incumbent candidates are promising on the campaign trail is term limits. Do you support term limits? And if so, what should that limit be for the House of Representatives? So, you know, it's interesting when I've always believed in term limits and I still do. I do think there's a delicate balance, though, because and, and this is coming from you know, a 28 year old congressional candidate here. But I do think there's tremendous value in institutional knowledge, whether that be in business or in, or in politics. You know, people who have, you know, one of my mentors is David Price, who is one of the three Democrats in the House, uh, one of the incumbents who I'm hoping will get reelected again here in 2018. David Price has been in office for a really long time. He understands how the system works. He understands how to work in the system to get uh, to get legislation passed. With that said, there is a limit. There should be a limit because if you've been in Congress uh, for, for 30, 40 years, uh, there, is a, there is a limit on how much understanding you really have about what's going on in the economy, in the job force, in the workforce, in healthcare and education. I mean, the reason I say that I'm qualified is because I've worked in 30 states. I've retrained thousands of American workers. I see what they're going through on a day in and day out basis. And my mission in, in my career has been to help make their lives better. And I, I don't think it's possible to maintain that perspective when you've been in Washington for 30 or 40 years. So there is a balance here. I do think we should pass term limits. The question is, to your question, how, how long? And so I think that there's one guiding principle that I have, and that is that if you are in the House a lot of folks view uh, the Senate as a promotion from the House. And so I think that there should be separate term limits for the House and the Senate, but that it shouldn't preclude you from being promoted. If the people of the state think you've done a great job in the House of Representatives, then certainly I think that you should be uh, allowed to advance and promote uh, into the Senate if, if that's the path you choose. Um, so, you know, in my framework in the past, we've talked about an eight term limit. Uh, or 16 eight, or 18 years, uh, depending on the flex there. Uh, and then if you've served 18 years in the House and you want to run and go into the Senate, that there should be an 18-year cap or three-term limit uh, of what you serve in the Senate. I think that that is a, a good starting point for the discussion. And I do think that it would help uh, us continuously refresh voices in Washington because Washington does need some new voices. And the only way that we're able to bring the, the new voices 
is for folks like myself to run who are younger, who understand technology and the way it's changing the economy and, and want to do better for the people. So Ryan, I, I love how you talk about bringing in new voices and, and bringing in that next generation perspective. If you're elected to the House and if Democrats do take the chamber, um, one of your first decisions and perhaps one of the most important ones would be who you support for Speaker of the House if Democrats are in the majority. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts. Would you be supporting Nancy Pelosi as Speaker if elected and if the Democrats take the chamber? So, you know, this, this, this question I get asked a lot, and I know a lot of candidates are getting asked this too. Uh, I cannot sit here with a straight face uh, given the answer that I just gave uh, about term limits and then, you know, and, and new voices and fresh perspectives and then say, you know, yes, I think that we need to continue having Nancy Pelosi as a speaker of the House. Uh, so I do think it's time for new leadership there as well. But let me also say, you know, Nancy Pelosi is one of the best public servants this country has had. Uh, and I respect her tremendously. She is a master litigator. And, and we should find a way to, to keep her and to, and to learn from her and her institutional knowledge, like I said. But I do think it's time for Democrats to begin turning the page uh, to, to find new, uh, younger leaders uh, who can provide a fresh voice for this party, uh, who respect the, old, the elder generations. And, and we certainly respect our elders, but are also looking to empower the younger generations to step forward. Uh, and so I, I think that I don't know who that name would be. It'd be interesting to see who would toss their name into the ring. I think it should be someone who does understand the, the process of passing legislation. I also think it should be a unifier, someone who is interested in in talking more about what our vision is and less about all of the bad things Republicans are doing. Obviously, there are a lot of bad things uh, that that this administration is doing to undermine working working and middle class families. But I, I, I think that we need to con consistently focus on what why we're different, you know, that, that we, we have a lot of ideas about equality, about fairness, about promoting prosperity, uh, about uh, reducing inequality in so many ways. And I think that's going to take new leadership. And, and to be honest with you, from a strategic perspective, for us to be successful in 2020 as well, you know, we're going to need new leadership then also. And so I think this 2018 is a turning point for this party. I think it's a turning point for this country. And I think the only way it's it's as successful as it possibly can be is if we if we ask for new leadership in the House. Ryan, perhaps the biggest issue of our time, the issue that speaks to the fundamental character of our nation is immigration. I'd like to actually go back in the past to contextualize what's going on now, all the way back to 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. Now I bring this up because the Chinese Exclusion Act is what criminalized undocumented status. That was not a civil offense prior to that, and what put deportation and detention because of undocumented status under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned whatsoever in the Constitution. I'd like to read a very quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting decision, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. In regards to deportation, quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business 
and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most cruel and severe. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? And what would you do as a member of Congress to decriminalize migration and disentangle immigration from these white supremacist policies that define our system to this very day? That is a really great question. And this is a very touchy subject uh, for a lot of people, but, it, but you know, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, for a long time, both parties have really failed to address immigration. Uh, and so my message to folks is that immigrants are not the cause for whatever problem you may have. Unless you are a Native American, uh, you and your family came here within the past 300 years. And immigrants who are doing all sorts of jobs in this country uh, from, from uh, you know, from every end of the spectrum, you know, they aren't taking your jobs. Job loss has been caused by greedy corporations who treat people as disposable labor and who have become more and more unconstrained by legal or union protections. You know, most immigrants in this country work hard, they pay taxes, but yet they don't get Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, or any sort of unemployment compensation. In fact, they contribute far more to the economy than they take out. So we've got to stop this narrative. We've got to stop this fear mongering about how they're all criminals and, and we should start treating them like the valuable contributors to this society that they are. And so given this situation, I think there's, there's a lot of room for us to, first of all, stop yelling at one another and to agree that there is a way to protect our border, to provide clear paths to citizenship for people who want to be contributors to America, and that we must go about all of this business with fair and humane treatment for everybody. And, you know, I, I just have to say this, you know, I am a Christian. I do not care if you are a Christian or you are not, if you are, if you practice one religion or the other. But here's what I know about Christianity and about really every other major, major world religion. Christianity is a welcoming, it is a nurturing, and it is a liberating religion. And folks like my opponent, you know, who, who loves to say as a former pastor, blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry, but if you're voting this way, if you are not speaking up about separating children from their families, if you are not really appreciating and respecting the value that immigrants bring to America and to this society and what they have brought to this society for over 300 years, your religion and the way that you are voting and the la and, and the way that you are being silent in the face of, of some of these atrocities that this administration are promoting, those two things just do not match. So my message to people is, look, I, I understand there's one party who has claimed a moral high ground for a long, long time, but this is not who we are. This is not what Christianity or, again, any other major world religion says that we should do. And so I truly believe that it is time for us to, to you know, permanently protect DACA recipients, to provide clear paths to citizenship, to recognize the fact that it takes, if you want to come here, as they say, to get in line and, and, and come here legally, we have to understand that in from many countries, there is a waiting list for more than 20 years. So if you want to come here uh, to create a life, to make your, to, to improve you and your family's uh, trajectory in life, that our system is broken and it's time for us to fix it. And it's also time to stop treating undocumented uh, immigrants as criminals when by and large they are not and by and large immigrant communities are safer.
and have less crime than non-immigrant communities in America. So uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, immigrants are not the problem. Faulty immigration policies are. And, and that's something that the next Congress needs to boldly step forward on and say, enough is enough. Let's do something about this. And let's truly address this once and for all, because this isn't just about people, even though people are the main crux of the issue. It's also about businesses that are really struggling to find people that they need. And when I work with businesses, I see the main reason when they decide to, to send jobs overseas, the main reason they're sending jobs overseas are because they can't find the workforce here in America who are trained, who are ready, or who are willing. And so that speaks to a whole lot of issues, but it also incredibly speaks to the issue we have with immigration. Ryan, it's really great to hear you recognize that this is truly about disposable labor, deportable labor in a very racialized sense. Now, an important proposal right now among immigration activists, undocumented activists, is to end the placement of immigration agencies under the Department of Homeland Security, which was not the case before 2003. Would you support defunding ICE, an agency that did not exist for the vast majorities of the centuries of the existence of the United States, providing a pathway to citizenship for not just the DACA recipients who make up less than 30% of the undocumented population, but also their families, their parents, their grandparents, and ending the label of immigrants as inherent national security threats by removing immigration agencies from the DHS and perhaps moving immigration agencies to the Department of Justice, which was, again, the case before 2003. So uh, let me work a little backwards from your question. Uh, let me start by saying, if you're here, you're paying taxes, you're a law-abiding uh, person here in this country, you should have a pathway to citizenship. If you've been here for 15, 20 years uh, and you have never broken the law and you've just, you are a valuable part of the fabric of our society, whether you are a DACA recipient or you are not, yes, you should have a pathway to citizenship here. That is, that is full stop. Uh, I also recognize, uh, you know, even here in the 6th District, there have been several ICE raids um, that have, have struck fear into the heart of, of these communities. Um, most people don't realize that ICE was, it is really a fairly new branch uh, of, of the government and within the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I think that it is clear, based on what I have seen, what I have heard in this district and, and beyond, that ICE has really lost its way uh, and and does need to be reconstituted and and put in check because the way that they are operating, they're operating more as a brutal law enforcement task force than they are really, um, really protecting people. Uh, they, they're saying, you know, we're only going after criminals, but I've spoken to multiple immigration attorneys who say that that is not the case and that judges and and government attorneys um, in these agencies have been instructed to change just in the last year and a half have been instructed to change the way that they are approaching this they have cast a wider net uh, than they were under the obama administration and and the message is this when you are casting a wide net you cannot possibly be looking for the people that you really need to be looking for so it is it is it is clear that ice is out of control 
that it needs to be reconstituted and reformed, and it needs to be held accountable. Right now, this Congress and this administration have taken uh, the leash off of ICE, let them run in any direction that they see fit, and have not put them in check when they have acted brutally or inhumanely. And that is not what this country is about. Now, I know there's a big call to abolish ICE. Uh, I think that we need to look more closely at that, but regardless of whether we abolish it or not, we do need to have enforcement mechanisms in place where there are uh, immigrants who are committing crimes. But that does not mean that we need to cast a wide net that we catch nonviolent, law-abiding people in just because we want to, to, to deport them. So at minimum, we need to hold hearings on day one of the next Congress to really get a hold of how ICE is being instructed and, and to hold them accountable for acting inhumanely. Uh, we can use government resources far more efficiently than targeting innocent school-aged children, um, innocent families who are just working to make ends meet and who are, who are law-abiding. So would you support ending the Chinese Exclusion Act practices that I mentioned before and allowing immigrants to go through the normal criminal justice system and be handled by the Justice Department? Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, we we say we're a nation of laws and uh, we, we are a nation of immigrants. And so for us to treat certain people one way and not be consistent with that in other ways uh, really runs contrary to what I believe this country is about. Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We're, we were really glad that we were able to make this happen. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Drew, um, all caps tweets. Uh, he, he really brought you to our attention. So you've got a great wingman on Twitter with him. Um, and I really just want to ask, you know, as a millennial, as a digital native, how are you finding your usage of social media and digital advocacy to assist in your campaign? Well, it, it's been amazing uh, to, you know, for the last really more than a year, we kicked off this campaign over a year ago. And if you would have told me a year over a year ago that this is where we would be this is how much support we would have this is how many advocates and volunteers that we would have uh i would have been thrilled uh, and i am thrilled because we have got an amazing team of people who you know who are who are just tweeting constantly who are facebook commenting who are instagram followers uh you know selfish plug here for watts for congress on both twitter and uh, instagram and facebook We've got a lot of folks who are so supportive, and what's amazing is they're not just young people. Uh, they are they are retirees. They are they are middle aged folks. They are working people. They are middle class people. They are they are every shape, size, color, orientation, uh, religious background. You name it, and it is it is inspiring to see what can happen when we come together. And the last I checked, uh, folks, uh, we're the United states of america not the divided states of america and that i think is what we have to what we have to realize there are a group of people who use as an election strategy division and it started with the southern strategy with richard nixon and ronald reagan and it is being continued now we are stronger when we stand together, when we recognize that when our neighbor does better, we all do better. And that is why we are stepping forward because we believe that when we are united, we are stronger. And I don't think that, that anyone could look at social media or look at the news or look at anything and, and really feel confident that we are, that we are together 
um, as a nation right now. And any leader who is purposefully driving a wedge between between people based on race or orientation or religion or any other measure or metric um, is is really doing a disservice uh, to this country and to the future of this country. And so uh, that is what I've been inspired to see is people coming together uh, on our social feeds and in our donor and in our small dollar donors and and just people we see in the community every day who know that what's going on in Washington right now isn't what we're about. Okay, great. Well, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast. We think your candidacy is really exciting. I'm actually even more excited now that I've spoken to you. So thank you again, and we wish you the best of luck on the campaign. Well, thank you. Uh, last I checked, we had about 83, 82 uh, days left. It's a it's a, a marathon, but it's starting to become a sprint. And uh, so if you're in North Carolina, or even if you're not, uh, definitely please go check out our website, Watts for Congress, or as I mentioned on social media, uh, we're, we're doing a lot of innovative, creative things uh, to bring t- together people and to show them that the next generation of leaders is here. We are we are strong, we are outspoken, and, and we know um, that we can do better, we must do better, and that this November, I think we're gonna do better uh, as a country moving forward. Ryan, we're, we're really excited for your candidacy, and uh, you know your district is, from what I have seen, is R plus nine, so that's within the margin of some of these special election shifts that we've seen. So we're really looking forward to having you back as uh, Congressman Watts. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Jordan, Nathan, uh, thank you both so much for what you do. Thank you for raising political awareness. I, I, I think that, you know, the millennial generation has gotten a bad rap unfairly uh, and in some ways maybe fairly for our lack of involvement. But I think that what you are leading the charge on and what we're seeing across this district and the state and this country are that millennials know now more than ever that we've got to start taking the future in our hands because it's the future that we're going to live out. And if we don't get off the sidelines and into the game, uh, we're going to suffer the consequences. So thank you for being an agent of change and thank you for having me today. It means a lot. Yeah, of course. And to our listeners with that, the primaries are still going on. We have about a month before the primaries finish. If you are in one of the states where the primary has not occurred yet, make sure that you are registered as a Democrat and make sure to vote in your primary. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website and our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.